Welcome to today's episode of Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution or Reform, where we talk all things DNI to ask whether DNI can save us, get us free, or move us towards collective liberation. I'm Connie. And I'm David. Each week on this podcast, we'll get into whether DNI is revolution or reform with guests who are DNI practitioners, activists, organizers, or academics and researchers in the field. We talk strategy, mindsets, growth, learnings, and mistakes, and even some juicy DNI confessions. Because at the end of each day, we're all humans just trying to do our best. All right, you all, we made it. We are at our season wrap of the first season of Revolution or Reform. And we are really excited to just unpack what we've listened, learned, and want to uplift for the season with you all. And I know there have been debriefs after every episode, but we want to talk about it as an overall package. So David, what were some themes or learnings that you wanted to uplift? Yeah, one, I I think I'll just say this up top, it's been really good getting to know you better. I think for folks that don't know, we've shared with some, the reason that we're going to end the season now and take an indefinite hiatus is both Connie and I are becoming parents uh, separately, right? (laughs) Connie and her partner, me and my partner, we're becoming parents in the next coming months. And so we're taking time away to... uh, embrace that next journey of life. I've really appreciated the time to get to know you on a deeper level and learn from you as we've learned from so many of our guests. But our guests have been so wonderful. You know, both you and I are on the outskirts of the DNI industry, if you will. You know, you've participated in it a lot more than I have in the past, but getting to talk to our guests has been in some ways a confirmation of things that I already knew and am discouraged by, and in some ways enlightening about, you know, there is really a both and uh, approach that's needed. Like revolution or reform is a binary, right? And we don't subscribe to binaries, but, you know, is a good framing for a a podcast just to think about, you know, what are our approaches? I think, you know, one of the ways that I really appreciated our guests challenging my thinking, or, or, or two, one, Xavier Ramey, in the conversation that I had with him, are these reforms that are happening within DNI spaces revolutionary reforms or reformist reforms? That was a really good framing because, you know, within the constructs of capitalism and these organizations that we work with, you know, they're going to continue to exist until that day when everything is torn down and things have been made new. So what are the things that we can do and change within the systems that are going to move us towards those things instead of solidifying these capitalist systems that make life difficult for all of us? Yeah, I love that. And also, thank you for the appreciation. I also so much ditto right back. And people don't know, we actually met in the pandemic on Zoom for the first time and have only seen each other in person, I think, twice, which is still a blessing having met in the pandemic. But yeah, I hear you. I feel like sometimes when I say like a both and, it feels like such a cop-out answer where I'm like, well, it's a both and. But I really do feel like if anything in the conversations that we've had with our guests in the Eleven episodes, there is such a both end complexity to just doing diversity, equity, and inclusion within the systems, or even if we're outside of the systems. And I think my biggest learning that I want to uplift and that has been reaffirmed and echoed by our guests is that DEI is so much about harm reduction at this stage, which lends itself to being more in the function of reform rather than revolution. 
And at the same time, I do think that context really matters. So for some spaces and contexts, maybe the way that they're doing DEI can be very revolutionary. And for others, it may feel very reformist. You know, I think what's been really beautiful in listening to our guests is just in some ways the hope or the optimism that is underneath some of the just exhaustion and the fear and the trauma that comes from doing the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, whether in-house or outside. And it kind of makes me think about how maybe where we're revolutionary in this work is at the individual level. So if we can be revolutionary as practitioners, we can start to shift the overall system, which feels quite reformist at this point, right? I'm really thinking a lot about fractals from Emergent Strategy and Adrian Marie Brown, where it's really thinking about, you know, how we are at the small scale as how we are at the large scales. So with all of the guests that we've talked to, you know, they're doing whatever they can to be revolutionary in the spaces that they move through, bumping against these reformist systems. But I do believe that it's contagious, right? Revolutions are contagious. And so for me, that feels really helpful and something that I wanted to uplift in our kind of, you know, season wrap here. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we think about the wonderful individuals who graced us with their time and presence, and it just occurred to me now, five out of the 11 of them were in periods of transition and rest. Whether they shared it on pod with you or not, based off of the conversations that I've had with them, right? After 2020, after so much exhaustion of going so hard and being exhausted by this work, the capitalist way that this work is happening, we've had so many people either taking breaks from their current roles just to get a respite so they can jump back in or taking a wild step back and reevaluating how they want to continue to move in this space in ways that are going to help them make those long-term revolutionary acts or work towards reforms that they believe in that are really truly harm reductive, not uh, just dressing up the system in a different way. Because, you know, speaking to people who are on the inside, like Cornell and Amber, right, they're exhausted too. They've been doing this work for, you know, the last couple years. And, you know, while they have teams that they're building to continue to support this work, being the person who's driving this work from the inside, continuing to push, you know, some welcome and invitation, but like there's always resistance to change. That's just how people are. And I know that's a very difficult, it's a difficult space to work in where, um, Whereas for me, most of the times when I'm doing work, like it's people who are inviting me in to like talk about restorative justice or people who are opting in to do this learning. And that's a lot more energizing to work with people who are like, yeah, I want to learn this. I really want to go here. But I'm so grateful for those who are on the inside and who continue to work on the inside as an outsider, right? The people who are our consultants, who are building spaces for people to learn, hold space for people to wrestle with the ideas that have been ingrained, entrenched in their own lives and the institutions so uh, we can shift to make things more equitable, more human-centered. There's just so much and all of it's needed and more. Yes, all of it is needed and more. And as you were talking, I kind of had this image in my mind of how, like, if you were to think about a wall or a door, you need people on both sides to either help build it up or to tear it down, right? So 
I've always kind of fell into this trap of, you know, like you, is it better to work on the inside or is it better to work on the outside against the system? You know, that conversation constantly. But that is also binary and we are not about binaries here. So I absolutely think that we need everyone in this work, whether you're inside or outside. And I'm curious, you know, as we're wrapping up here, David, is there anything that, you know, we haven't touched on with any of our guests that you wanted to uplift here or like shine a light on? Because I know this is, we're wrapping up as a season, but it's never the end of a conversation for diversity, equity, inclusion, or in our work really around restorative justice and healing justice, larger justice work ahead. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you might know that a little bit ago, we hosted a webinar with Tema Oken, who is the white woman who wrote an article about 20 years ago and has since updated it in the form of a website around white supremacy culture. And one of the questions that we asked her was about this idea of inclusion and inclusion into what and who is doing the including is something that I deeply resonate with, right? Because as a person who is quote unquote race diverse, right? In many ways, I belong to dominant groups as a cis man, as a straight person, as someone with a master's degree, as someone with relative socioeconomic privilege, right? But like as a diverse, racially diverse person, like, do I still want to be included into whiteness? No, right? And so when we're talking about like that DNI work, how do we make sure the inclusion that we're talking about is not including people into something that um, is not sustainable, is not human-centered, is not just, is not equitable. I think both healing justice and restorative justice offer frameworks to continue to do that work. And so as Connie and I continue our respective journeys into parenthood, you know, the work for us isn't stopping. And so if you want to explore those avenues, you are more than welcome to reach out to all of us. Links to do that in the show notes. Yeah, check it out and keep in touch with us. Speaking of the live virtual event with Tema, so many of you had shared positive feedbacks and learnings with us about the event. And I know that even for myself, listening to Tema and being able to engage in questions, I learned so much. Tema dropped so many gems and wisdoms around not necessarily the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, but really on dismantling white supremacy. So it's really pushing us beyond diversity, equity, and inclusion. And because... We wanted to continue that conversation. We are dropping it here as a podcast episode to round out our season. Enjoy the conversation, y'all, and stay in touch. Well, y'all, I feel so much of your energy, and I'm welcoming all of you from all over. We're really excited to be here with you all to talk about dismantling white supremacy culture with Tema Okun. My name is David Ryan Barsega Castro Harris. That's all five names for all of my ancestors. I use he, him pronouns. I am one of the co-hosts of the podcast, This Restorative Justice Life, where my co-host Connie and I uh, have conversations with DEI practitioners, advocates, academics about how we can push conversations about diversity and inclusion towards equity, justice, and collective liberation. Independent of that, Connie and I do our own work in this space of justice. So I'm going to let Connie introduce herself. Hello, everyone. Hello. Wow. Let me just take this all in for a second. We're so Excited to see all your faces, and I'm glad there are cameras on because we love seeing faces. Thank you so much for joining us in Conversation Community. My name is Connie. My pronouns are she, hers. 
I'm one half of the podcast I do with David, and I'm also one half of the And Now Collective. So you'll see the picture at the top is my fellow co-founder and co-facilitator. Her name is Dina Scott, and it's Dina Scott as a baby with her mom, uh, just so we know who's who in the photo. And in the picture below uh, that photo is me as a baby with my mom. And the reason why we always share this photo is just how much of our lived experiences feel so connected to each other. Both Dina and I were raised by single moms. We both identify very strongly as um, women of color. Dina identifies as Black African American, and I am Southeast Asian, specifically Lao and Chinese. And we're just fiercely dedicated to healing justice at the intimate, interpersonal, and societal and structural levels. So, and now our mission is all about building a radical collective for revolutionary wellness and collective rising through the prism of racial justice and social healing. And what that looks like is you know, very much about integrating racial equity work with community mental health. It's integrating anti-racism with trauma-informed practices. And really, at the end of the day, our organizing principle is this notion that healing is justice and justice is healing. So you can learn more about us through our website or by reaching out to us. And there's so much more to share, but I'm going to turn it back to David because I know there's a lot on our agenda for tonight. Yes, absolutely. And again, for those of you who are just joining us, welcome, welcome. It's so good to have you. I represent an organization called Amplify RJ. RJ stands for Restorative Justice, although racial justice could be something, is something that we talk about too. But Amplify RJ's mission is to teach restorative justice philosophy, practices, and values through a lens of abolition, anti-racism, and decolonization. Big scary words for some folks, but we're really just trying to build a world full of communities of care where folks have the resources and knowledge to be in right relationship with each other. That involves proactive building of relationships as well as that repair of harm process that you know is not punitive. We do this a couple ways. We share content that it inspires, informs, educates, either in digital space on our podcast, This Restorative Justice Life. And you probably found us because of social media, either LinkedIn or Instagram. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, kind of. Uh, interactive learning experiences. Most of them are more interactive than this. <laughs> They're a lot smaller. And communities of practice where we're continuing to be in relationship with each other as we learn. We've talked enough. Y'all aren't here to hear from us. Y'all are here to hear from Tema Oken. You know, we've been talking about diversity and inclusion and pushing the boundaries of that, but how many of you in your place of work are actively having these kinds of conversations? It's really important for Connie and I to be having this conversation, for me especially, being a quote-unquote diverse person and being included into a system of white supremacy is something that I'm not really trying to strive for. We're trying to dismantle these systems. But now we're going to hear from the person who has given us the framework to talk about white supremacy culture, Tema Oken. Tema has over 30 years of experience working with these ideas of racial justice and equity. She's taught on undergrad, master's, doctoral levels, as well as across many community organizations. Um, done so much work, so much writing, so much work within herself as a spiritual person having a human experience, continuing to do this work across so many places. I don't want to waste any more time and really just want to get to this conversation. So Tema, welcome, and we're so glad to have you all. Thank you. First of all, I'm so, so, so honored and excited to be here and to be here with all of you. 
and your beautiful faces. And if I can't see your faces, your beautiful names. So Tamla, welcome. The first question that we always start when we're asking our podcast guests is just to share the lineage of your work in diversity, equity, inclusion. But I know that for you, you're not quite a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner, or you don't um, necessarily call yourself that. But we'd love to just hear a little bit about the lineage of your work when it comes to dismantling white supremacy culture. So I in the mid eighties, I was working in an organization called Grassroots Leadership in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the organization was at that time, an organization, our our mission was to support community organizing across the South. And most of the people in the organization were experienced community organizers. That was not the case for me. I was hired to do all kinds of other things and to support that work. What happened as we were supporting community organizing in the South in the mid eighties, was that people would come to us and say, our efforts, our organization, our organizing is being torn apart by racism. It's being torn apart by sexism. It's being torn apart by homophobia. Can you help us? And you know, we wanted to help, we didn't really know what to do. And the director of grassroots leadership, a man named Sai Khan, decided to make a project out of our ignorance. And we proceeded to create this program called Barriers and Bridges. And I was very fortunate to be paired with the person that we hired to lead that project, a man named James Williams. And he and I and some other staff people, we went out and um, we spent about a year getting all the different kinds of training that was available to us at that time. So we went to the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, the Equity Institute in California, which doesn't exist anymore, the Lily Allen Institute in Atlanta, the, the Crossroads Ministry, which is now the Crossroads Institute. And we noticed that people were doing workshops maybe a day long or weekend workshop. And we felt like we wanted to do a longer a longer process. So we created a, an experiment, if you will, a two-year process called Barriers and Bridges. And we worked with eight organizations. We learned a tremendous amount. We repeated that. And in that process, I met a man named Kenneth Jones. And he and I ended up partnering together and forming a group called Change Work. And he was my mentor and colleague for 12 years until he died way too soon in 2004. And after he died, we formed another collaborative merging out of that called Dismantling Racism Works. So it was basically my lineage is that I have been incredibly fortunate to be in relationship with very smart, brilliant, creative, generative people who helped me to learn a lot about what it means to understand white supremacy and racism, to think about how to teach about that to other people, how to support activism and uh, racial justice commitments. And then at one point when Kenneth was still alive, I remember we were doing a workshop and we were sitting on a patio. It was dusk. I have a very strong memory of this. And I said to Kenneth, you know, I think we need to start something called tough love consulting. He said, what do you mean? So I think we need to go in and we need to charge a whole lot of money and then grab people by the shoulders and go, get your shit together and then leave. And he said, "Hmm, I think you're burning out. Maybe you need to step back a little bit. And at that point, because I was burning out, I, with his graceful support, started bringing what we had learned into classrooms, into college classrooms. And I started teaching, doing adjunct teaching in the area where I lived in North Carolina. And, And so we just started, you know, had this wonderful relationship between classroom teaching, community based teaching. Yeah. And I just continued to be able to find incredible people to work with. And here I am. 
Beautiful. And, you know, in 99, you wrote that article that so many of us uh, here in the space are familiar with, white supremacy culture, right? Since then, you have made updates as one should do after, you know, 20 plus years. It's manifested in the website, whitesupremacyculture.info. But what are the updates that you've made and what do you want people to know about them? Yeah, thank you. So I did write the article in 1998 or 1999. Kenneth was still alive. We were still working together. I was living on the West Coast for a year. I had been fortunate while working with Kenneth and learning, you know, learning a lot with him and some other colleagues, Change Work, which was the group we had then. And then I was at the same time, I was taking a workshop called the Challenging Challenging White Supremacy Workshop run by Sharon Martinez in the, in the Bay Area and learning so much from her. And then I also took another, I, I took them as often as I could. I took another People's Institute workshop led by, uh, co-led by a man named Daniel Buford and learning a lot from him. And so what happened is that I just, one night after a particularly frustrating meeting, I came home and sat in front of my computer and the article literally came through me. It's the only experience I've ever had. I don't really feel like it's my work because I feel like I have been so influenced by so many people and it just kind of wrote itself. Sharon was the one who said, um, you need to have, if you're going to talk about the characteristics, you need to have antidotes. So then we just started including it in the workbook and in the, in the materials that we were using in our workshops. And it started to get some, this was before the internet, it started to get circulated. And then it had this incredible resurgence after George Floyd was murdered. And at that point, you know, I realized that it really needed updating and revising and it needed to have a class lens. It needed to have more explanations. There were some things that needed to be added uh, in particular, the whole characteristic or the whole notion of fear, the way that, that white supremacy culture is driven by fear and needed to be addressed. And, and I thought about doing it as another article and it, it can be downloaded as a PDF from that website. And, and I, then I thought about doing it as a book. And then I thought about doing it as a website. And the reason I chose to do it as a website was because I wanted to be able to link to all the incredible wisdom or as much of the incredible wisdom, I'm sure I've, that's not linked to all of it, but to a lot of the incredible wisdom that's out there by people who've been doing anti-racism work, you know, for so long. And the website just gave me a lot of flexibility to be able to, to do that and to share a lot um, of people's work and, and thought and creativity. And there's a whole page where people who've taken the article and adapted it or revised it or made it specific to a field um, are sharing their work. There's a page about racial of the racial equity principles that are training collaborative came up with as we were doing our work together. So it just, I felt like it, it offered an ability to go a little bit deeper and also to share thinking and feeling about white supremacy culture in other ways besides just writing. So there's art, there's poetry, there's videos, there's some music. Thank you. I revisit that website constantly. It's I, I think it's so interesting because there's so much of your own reflection on there. And there's so much that's also so communal and collective about the work that has been put into using and adapting the white supremacy culture and characteristics. So this article and this work and this framework has been in the world for a couple of decades. I'm not doing the math right from 1999 till now. I'm really not good at numbers, so I'm not going to do the calculation. But I'm curious kind of in that time where you've seen it out in the world, what characteristic do you think is often the 
the most misunderstood or misapplied, whether it's on the, you know, the in individual level or within a workplace, within institutions. I know also that you talked about fear, and I think fear is so under talked about within the work um, of racial equity and diversity, equity and inclusion and our relationship to fear. So we'd just love to hear uh, kind of your reflection on which characteristic is most understood or misapplied. Probably I'm going to answer this sideways, so I'm probably not going to answer exactly what you're asking. Because I think like all oppression, they're so interconnected. It's not like they operate by themselves. You know, it's not like you just see perfectionism or you just see sense of urgency that they really support each other in this very devious and toxic way. And so I don't know that I would choose one. I would say that the the things that are misunderstood that concern me and that I try to address on the website, one is that the characteristics get used as a weapon, which is not their intent is to help us all sort of see the way we're all swimming in white supremacy culture, no matter who we are, no matter our class, our race, our gender, we're all swimming in it. And so we all are navigating it in some kind of way. And this, and, and the naming of it in this way, there's lots of ways to name it. The naming of it in this way is really designed to help us see how we get in our own way around it. It's not meant to bash each other over the head with. And the other is that sometimes people think that what I'm saying is Black, Indigenous, people of color, communities of color can't be excellent, can't write well. And that's not at all what I mean. And when I talk about worship of the written word, I'm simply talking about the ways in which um, white supremacy culture, our culture is really requires that things be written down and they be written down in a certain kind of way and in a way that doesn't respect culture, doesn't respect people's uh, creativity and doesn't respect people who share information in ways other than writing it down. So that one gets misunderstood. And then it was really important to me to add fear because I think fear is, is at the bottom of all of this. It's the driver, white supremacy culture uses fear to drive us all. You know, fear of losing, for white people, fear of losing our position, fear of losing fear of realizing that we're not actually better than others, fear of fear of others, and then, you know, directly instilling fear in people and communities of color through the extreme and persistent violations. So yeah. And sideways answer is beautiful <laughs> as well. And if I can uh, add you know, in using the framework with different people and organizations in my time as doing racial equity work, the intellectualizing piece is often most misunderstood, I think, and misapplied where, you know, it's somehow, oh, like there, we don't want quality of work, right? Like somehow we're lowering the bar. So I think that has come up a lot in the conversations that I've had. And in connection to that question, since the framework has lived in the world and has been applied, in your reflections, you know, do you see anything as missing from the characteristics that people have brought up to you or in conversations or in different contexts? Like, do you have people added to the framework in a way that you think would be useful for us to consider in this space tonight? A, a particular characteristic doesn't come to mind. What I will say, and if you go to that page, the page on the website where people have worked with it, I think mostly people have adapted it like there's a medical version for people who work in the medical field and their people have adapted it for very specific situations, which I think is really wonderful. And I love for people to do that and to take it and, and work it in whatever way makes sense for them. So I don't, I'm sure there are things missing. And I'm sure there, you know, one of the things that I hope I, I don't misspeak here, but I actually 
have great admiration for white supremacy culture because it's incredibly devious. It's incredibly adaptive. And as soon as we start to understand it in one way, it adapts and, and shows up in some other kind of way. And so I'm absolutely certain that there are ways that I'm not seeing it and that other people are. And again, one of the reasons for the links is, is that. And I think the thing that I missed a lot in the first round was this class lens. So when I'm talking about white supremacy culture, it's not that all white people define this culture. And there's quite a bit of talk about a class lens on the website. And it's that the characteristics that I've named, that I have named, are basically characteristics of upper class, middle class, upper middle class, you know, formally educated white power brokers. And that when you are a poor or working class white person, you are also you know, often struggling to adapt or assimilate into those characteristics because they are not necessarily characteristics of your lived experience. So adding a class lens seemed to be uh, really important. There's a, a woman named Carrie Points on the homepage during the launch. She talks a lot about class. It's really a brilliant piece of that launch. So if you don't listen to anything else, I'd listen to her. And then I quote her quite a bit when I talk about class. There's so many layers of this intersections of identity that folks often have a hard time dealing with. I was talking with somebody on LinkedIn yesterday about like, I'm just a, a poor white guy who worked his way up. And like Connie, I shared the, I shared the third with Connie and like, there's so much frustration about like, you know, like he was trying to figure out like, you know, I have friends who look like you, right? I'm doing the whole diversity and inclusion thing. Tema, you and I a year ago on my podcast, This Restorative Justice Life, had a conversation about the intersections of restorative justice and uh, white supremacy culture. But one of the things that we didn't quite get time to was like, how is the D&I world, diversity and inclusion, or if you want to throw in uh, JEDI or EDIB or, you know, whatever the acronyms are, like, what are they missing when it comes to including white supremacy culture in their analysis and practices? Okay, there, well, there's two things I want to say. So the first thing I want to say, and I don't think this is on the white supremacy culture uh, website, there's another website that, that, that I had a part in creating called the, it's dismantlingracism.org, which is the collaborative that I was part of after Kenneth died, we closed and, and to celebrate or mark our closing, we put all of our materials on a website and it's dismantlingracism.org. And on that website, you'll find a list of our assumptions in doing this work. And one of the assumptions, which I think is really important to name is that in doing racial equity work under whatever banner that we're talking about, we are going to reproduce racism. And when I talk about the deviousness of white supremacy culture, this is an example. I mean, the, the white supremacy culture has set it up so that even trying to tackle it or undo it, we're going to inevitably reproduce racism because we're going to be talking about the ways that white supremacy and racism operate. And that even talking about it, reviewing the history of it, under, trying to understand all the nuances of how it operates and how it, it persistently violates people and communities of color is a very traumatic thing for people to experience, particularly for people of color to experience. So we're in this conundrum, in this tension of trying to tackle uh, white supremacy culture and racism, and we can't do it without actually reproducing, at least that was our experience, without actually reproducing in some ways the dynamics of white supremacy culture and racism. So that's one. And the second is that, you know, I hate this word inclusion and I hate it because it begs the question, who's including who into what? 
And I think the other assumption that we name on that website is that unless it's interrogated, unless we talk about it, the unspoken assumption about any kind of racial justice or racial equity work is that the purpose is to help Black, Indigenous, people of color, people of the global majority is to help them and to help them access whiteness, come up to the level of whiteness, join whiteness. And you know, I, I think whiteness is completely and, and utterly toxic and it's completely and utterly toxic even to the white, even to white people in, in my understanding of it. And so to talk about including people, you have to ask who's doing the invitation, who's including who, and what are they, what are they being included into? And I have no desire to include people into white supremacy culture or to include people into my current work is with faculty at a elite university. And, you know, I have no desire to include people into the culture of that university. I can't imagine anything more terrible. So I'm much more interested in those spaces where people are creating cultures that actually work for the people in those cultures in ways that create belonging for everyone. Thank you. And I love that you kind of hit on inclusion and (laughs) how it is actually not what we're striving for. And I've actually been thinking a lot also about equity itself, right? Because there's a lot of focus on equity, but it also could be that like, what is beyond equity, right? Like, are we, who gets to define equity and for whom? So I think these are all the big questions that are tying together within DEI, that white supremacy culture, your framework actually provides a lot more nuance and concrete ways of looking at how this shows up within systems. So I have a question that is maybe a little bit more about my own frustrations and tensions, but I want to tee it up for you to ask here. And it's about white people doing the work of racial equity or racial justice, right? And I think that what I've seen in my experience, having done this work for a decade in different contexts, is this dynamic or tension playing out among white people who are trying to do this work but feel paralyzed, right? And it could be because they don't want to be canceled, they don't want to take up space, they don't know how to do the work, they're waiting on BIPOC leadership or BIPOC voices and experiences to show and guide them. And this was intensified in the, you know, quote unquote, racial reckoning of the summer of 2020, which I'm still kind of waiting on, like, what did we reckon with? (laughs) But as I watch that dynamic play out, I get frustrated or I get angry in some ways because I understand the intention, but it often leaves white people who I feel like are committed silent, right? Or they don't move. They're not taking action. So I think my question for you, Tema, is, you know, like, explicitly, like, what do you see as white people's role in the work of dismantling white supremacy culture, right? And in ways that do not center whiteness or themselves as white people. It's a big question that I teed up. So let me know if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I I don't think there's one answer to that question. I I think that, so there are a couple things I want to say, and I want to reference the work of, I only know their last name, Iyer, I. Y-E-R, and they have this chart, this ecosystem of social justice. So what Deepa Iyer has done has said that, you know, there's an ecosystem of justice work. And in that ecosystem, there are lots of roles that people can play. And I think that's so important because I came up in a time where, and I'm a little ashamed to say this, but, you know, we used to do workshops about how organizing was the only legitimate way to be an activist. And I don't believe that anymore. I think there's so many, you know, so many ways for us to show up 
for racial justice and social justice. And that part of that has to do with developing enough of a relationship with ourselves that we know what we're called to do or what we can do or what we are capable of doing and where our growing edges are. One of the reasons that I think I burned out was because I failed to, I failed to really know myself well enough to know what was generative for me. And I was really motivated by a sense of duty, uh, which took me, you know, it took me far and then it burned me out. And I, I think, I think for white people, it's critical. This is my view now at this stage in my development, I think, and or the work that I'm doing, I'll put it that way. The work I'm doing is really trying to support myself and other white people to be really absolutely clear about our direct self-interest and racial justice. And that we are not doing this simply to help others, but that my soul is on the line. My life is on the line. My joy is on the line. My sense of belonging is on the line. My happiness is on the line. And and if we're not clear about that, then I don't think I don't think we're going to be able to come at it from an authentic or helpful place. And it, we will reproduce sort of the patronizing sense that we have the ability to fix things for people, to fix the very things that we've created for other people. So, so I think there's an emotional, spiritual, if you will, if you don't like spiritual, some some kind of awareness piece that that white people need to we need to work on. It's the reason I really believe in affinity groups for white people to meet with, not just to talk, and to, but to actually meet and to get clear about this so that when we take action, we also have a group to come back to and say, I tried this. I need to take this risk. I tried this. It didn't work. What do I do now? That we help each other. We support each other. You know, I got yelled at. What do I do? How do I feel? Can I just feel that right now? Or I got, you know, I got put on a pedestal. What do I do? That we help each other with, with all the dynamics of being in relationship with each other within the white group and then across lines of race. I also think that, um, you know, one of the racial equity principles is one of the 10 that we name on the website is to take risks and learn from our mistakes. So white supremacy culture teaches us that to make a mistake is to be a mistake, which definitely paralyzes us, you know, and we're going to make mistakes. We are going to make mistakes. And as white people, we are going to cause harm. We just are. And I'm sorry about that. And I wish it wasn't true. And it's, we are. So the best way to, or not the best way, a, a good way to approach this is to be in community with other white people who are trying to take action so that we can help each other, call each other in, support each other, keep each other going. I think that that's and we can do that across lines of race too. It doesn't just have to be in white affinity groups. I'm also active in an organization called Showing Up for Racial Justice. And their role is to organize white people to show up for racial justice. It's not just white people, but that's their mission. So there are ways that, that you know, as white people, we find out what we're good at, what we're called to do, how to be in community with other white people doing anti-racism work so that we can be accountable to ourselves and each other, that we're not leaning on or depending on people of color to tell us what to do, that we can take risks and not be paralyzed. Maurice Mitchell, who's the is a leader in Black Lives Matter, but also works with Working Families USA, says his quote is something like, my liberation has nothing to do with your anxiety about getting it right. He's, an, he's a black man. So, you know, and I think that, you know, we can't fail to act because we're afraid. And I'll tell a story. After Kenneth died, which was just, you know, one of the two most terrible times in my life, and we were all sort of struggling to figure out 
how to be in a world without Kenneth. I went and talked to uh, one of my colleagues, one of the women that I worked with, a very wise woman named Suzanne Plissick. And I said, you know, I don't see how we can be doing this and this anti-racism work. We don't have our shit together at all. You know, we have lots of racist dynamics happening in our organization. Who are we to be doing this work? And she took a long pause and she looked at me and in her wise way said, well, you know, we could wait until we absolutely have it right before we do any work. Or we could just keep doing the work and keep learning and be transparent with people about what we do and don't know. So, you know, there's a lot of performance in anti-racism work in this sort of sense that we have to show up a certain way or, or you know, I used to spend a lot of time thinking I had to prove that I was the right kind of white person. And, you know, I don't even know what that is. And, you know, I am just myself. And sometimes I'm fabulous and sometimes I'm pain in the ass. So, you know, just like everybody else. So, yeah, I think that's what I'll say about that. Thank you so much. It was really interesting for me listening to that, hearing as you were talking, like all the characteristics of white supremacy culture that were coming up in that, like the perfectionism, the fear, right? The one right way. And there's two questions. Which white supremacy characteristic shows up the most in your workplace? And then if, which of the white supremacy culture characteristics show up most in your life, right? These aren't things that are exclusive for white people, right? as a Black and Filipino person, right? I struggle a lot, one, with perfectionism, two, urgency. And that's the next question that I have for you, Tema, right? This work is so urgent, <laughs> right? People's lives are on the line. People's livelihoods are on the line in every, in any given moment. What do we do with this sense of urgency around doing this work without being urgent? So here's what I think. I think that it's beyond urgent that we do something about this. And, and that what I will say is that I was taking a walk and I, someone in my life had done some things that were really painful to me, really hurtful. And I was reflecting on those and I was, and what they would say to me is that they were doing the best that they could. And I was saying, well, and I'm going to swear here, fuck you. It's not good enough. You know, you can tell me you're doing as good as you're doing the best you can, but it's not good enough. And as I was walking, I, it hit me. Oh my gosh, that is what's happening in in the work, the racial justice work, which is that you know, racial justice is and restorative justice and justice is urgently needed now. And people who are targeted by racism and white supremacy and capitalism and all the ways that people are targeted deserve and need and require justice now. Uh, not 400 years ago. I mean, they need, required it 400 years ago, 200 years ago, a week ago, now. And that those of us, so if we're thinking, talking about race, those of us in the white group, many of us, I mean, some of us are intentionally white supremacists, but many of us who claim to be anti-racist are doing the best we can and it's not fucking good enough. And we're, and that, again, that is the tension that white supremacy culture creates, that we're sitting in that tension of and another reason it's important to have white affinity groups is that white supremacy has set it up so that, and I'm not trying to let white people off the hook here, but it's set up so that white people don't, don't see it, don't own it, don't know it, don't understand it. And so we're, you know, we're constantly catching up and it makes, it makes it very difficult for us to connect across lines of race because we're causing harm in ways that we, may know or we, we may not know. You know, I think about the desegregation of my high school. So I lived through the desegregation of my high school the very year that the 
schools desegregated. And what I can tell you is at that time when I was 16 and 17 years old, although I knew what was happening, my actual daily life was not impacted. While the daily life of my black peers was impacted in every possible way. And so that's, you know, that's the setup. And yeah, so I want I wanted to to talk about that as part of the the tension that we're all navigating. And so that there is this urgency that that this needs to be dealt with now. And I think that the way that urgency shows up in white supremacy culture is to to fail to address the larger the macro urgency by getting us very tied up in the micro urgency. It's like, we have to make a decision now. We have to figure this out now. What's the right way we are going to do it right now? It's like, we only have, we have a deadline. We have to do it in two weeks. Now there's no time to breathe. Oppression makes sure people can't breathe and, and urgency for those of us who are on the dominant side, make sure we don't breathe. There's no, there's no breathing. And where urgency is all about fear of needing to get something done right now. And when we're in this, and usually the deadlines or the the constraints are not ones that we set, although sometimes we internalize them so well that we start to set them for ourselves. And it means we're not able to just take a breath now. No, we're not able to expand and to see greater possibilities. We're not able to set our own agenda. We're always responsive. We're always you know, figuring out how to respond to what some agenda somebody else is setting. We're not able to think creatively or generatively. It's very, it, it shuts us down in these ways and it shuts out our, it shuts down our creativity because it's getting us focused on the micro while the, the urgency is the macro and it, and it keeps us from actually addressing the macro urgency, if that makes sense. It's one of the complexities of white supremacy culture. We ask most of our podcast guests, and again, this is a plug for the podcast, Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution and Reform. We have a couple of our previous guests here in the room with this, Xavier and Carissa. And if there's anybody else, I'm sorry that I'm missing you. But uh, we ask our guests, is DNI revolution or is it reform? So the first thing I'm going to do is say it's a binary question. So I try and catch whenever there's a binary, right? Is it this or is it that? And I think Diversity is critical to life. You know, if, if the very little I know about food systems and environmental systems and human systems is that we need diversity to, to live. We need diversity to, to thrive. And so, I mean, it sort of depends on who's using the word and for what purpose. You know, so many attempts are like, I want to I want diversity. So I want to go, this is a white person speaking, I want to go into a room and see a diverse group of people around the table. I don't necessarily want the culture to change. I don't want the decision-making process to change. I don't want the way we think about things to change, but it would be great to see a diverse, you know, so that's, you know, that's not anything that any of us care about. And I, I wanted to say, you know, you're asking me questions and people who are here are going to ask me questions and, you know, I'm answering them, but I don't have, I don't have answers. I have a lot more questions than I have answers. I've thought about these things quite a bit. Please know, I don't feel like I'm an expert or that I have answers. I feel like this is all collective, collaborative work that we're doing to try and live into these questions, which are so hard. And I think, you know, the institution of higher learning that I work at is so mired in its oppressive culture that, you know, to me, the interesting question is, is really, if it comes to education, is like, what do people need to know? And how are we supporting people to, to know how to 
be themselves in a very authentic way without all the layers of conditioning on top of it. It's like, what are the essential questions that we want to ask about who we are and how we want to show up? And I think, you know, I do a lot of, I did a lot of work in schools. I don't do so much anymore in public schools. And what I realized was that, you know, the, again, the assumption of schools, if you don't interrogate it, the assumption is that the purpose of school is to is you know you go to school you're supposed to get good grades you're supposed to graduate you're supposed to go to college then you're supposed to get a good job and then you're supposed to go shopping we need to interrogate the frameworks like what are we really doing here the world does not need more people consuming you know the world needs people who are loving and living and thriving and in all the different ways that that we can and have in the past that our ancestors have taught us to do and that capitalism and white supremacy and all the systems of oppression make it really hard to do in their very narrow agenda of power and profit for very few people. So I think it's more about what questions are we asking ourselves about what it is that we're really trying to do? And are those questions transformative questions that get to who it is that we really want to be in this world with and for each other? That's so beautiful. So let me ask um, one question for now that came up that I think was talking about kind of like in response to the urgency question that you were answering earlier. So this person had had written, we do not want to include people in the white supremacy culture. We want to build something else instead. But how do we grapple with the transitional time where wealth and basic needs are largely unmet in the settler capitalist patriarchy and we need to have our basic needs met to heal and build new culture, right? So it's that urgency, but like incrementalism is also not the answer or that's what's kept us from making any progress. So I'm just curious how you would answer that question. It's such a great question and I have no idea. I will say what I do know though, or what I've been thinking about, or what I think is important has to do with the one right way one, which is that, that I think it's really important for us, for me um, and for us to start to embrace all the different ways that people are navigating and entering into and trying to do work around building racial and all kinds of justice, right? And that that we, I know that I came up in a time, like I said, where I would do workshops on how community organizing was the only legitimate activism. And now I am really clear that all the different ways that people are trying to, to help each other and to help ourselves create the world that we want, we need them all. And so, you know, I used to turn up my nose at social services, but people need social services. I don't do that anymore. You know, we need all the different things. So, One is just to develop an appreciation for all the different roles that people are playing. And then again, to find the role that seems to make our hearts sing that we can really thrive at so that we can contribute to the effort in a way that is sustainable and generative for us and for our beloveds. So so that's sort of my thought about it. I think it's really important for us to start to create narratives or add to the narratives of what we want, deserve, and require in order to thrive to make sure we're always talking about that. Like even if we're doing the the pragmatic small step that we're talking about where that pragmatic small step is going to take us. So, you know, I'm, I'm feeding you right now because you need food right now. And I'm feeding you right now because you and we need and require and deserve healthy, good food all the time. So I would say the only thing I, I know for sure about it is that we need to keep putting out the narrative of what it is that we want, require and deserve over and over again. So we're not accepting anything less, even as we do the incremental steps. 
This question came up a lot and I'm kind of combining them together. There's a lot of a lot of questions around how do you convince people? How do you persuade people? How do you get people on board? And it comes in all different contexts, especially if they do not believe that white supremacy is real. They do not see white privilege. And there, there's a really interesting context where one person had asked, you know, especially in the field of science where there's, you know, scientific discovery is done um, and mirrors so much of the characteristics of white supremacy culture, right? Sense of urgency, perfectionism, individualism, right? So like how, I guess this is a really big question too. Like how do you convince people, get people on board? What do you do in those cases when they're just like, no, like white supremacy is not real? So again, I'm going to come at this sideways. I used to be a development director um, and director just because this was a time when we couldn't pay people much. So everybody was a director or something. And one of the things that I learned from the amazing Kim Klein, who um, is fundraising guru for the left, was that you that the goal is to find the people who want to support uh, whatever you're doing and haven't been asked. And so my first answer, you know, people often say, well, you're preaching to the choir. And I'll say, great, because I don't think the choir is in tune. So let's get in tune. And then as we get in tune, we don't have to wait until we're in tune, but as we get in tune, we're going to do as my mentor, Sharon Martinez said, each one, reach one, teach one. We're going to find the people closest to us and we're going to build our power that way. So, so I think the first instruction I have about that is that, and it depends, I mean, if it's a beloved or somebody in your family or that you're trying to convince, I'm not sure it's about convincing people. I think it's more about, first of all, finding the people who want, who are interested in some way, maybe that they're not using the language and making room for them to belong to whatever it is that we're trying to do. I think we can take a lesson from the right, actually. And so this is also on the website. There's a um, man named Christian Piccolini. He used to be a white nationalist uh, leader. He has a whole story. He has a great book. I really recommend it. But the point that he made that that really stuck with me, and I've read other books by people who were white nationalists who have left, and they all make this point, which was that they were not recruited into an ideology. They were recruited into belonging and that they were living isolated lives or they were in a family where there was the ideology was part of the belonging, but the belonging is what brought them in. This, This is a place I can I can be welcomed, I can be, I'm seen, I am encouraged, I am supported. And then the ideology comes later. And I, what I notice about the left is that we kind of do it the other way around. It's like, we need you to show up in a certain kind of way. And if you don't show up, in, if you don't have your ideology right, then you can't belong. And I'm exaggerating. And I think that is part of our dynamic. So a lot of, a lot of the most effective work, outreach work that I've seen organizations do, the Rural Organizing Project, Surge, Piedmont Peace Project when it was it existed here in North Carolina was to do these listening projects. These, this, and you know, there's a lot of activism around deep listening. And a lot of it is, is like, rather than me trying to convince you about my point of view, I'm really interested in what's going on for you. What do you care about? What it, because if you get underneath what people are saying, we can off, often find a lot of common ground or, or places where we see, see things the same way. So it might be less about convincing and more about listening. That takes more time. It's more complex. And, you know, I think that the people who are organizing white nationalism and fascism and, you know, in our country now, their advantage is that the, it's much easier to organize around hate 
And it's much easier to organize around, you know, come join us because when you join us, here are all the people who don't, you know, who don't belong, who we hate. And it's easy to feel good around that. So I think our project is a little more complex and because we're actually, I think, this is me speaking, I actually think we're inviting people to try and learn how to love ourselves and each other and not as a soft project. I don't mean love. I think love, loving myself has proven to be one of the hardest things I've ever done. Loving you even harder. And, you know, it's all about setting boundaries. It's all about knowing what I'm capable of. It's all about being honest and transparent. There's a lot of work around loving each other. So, but I think that's what we're called to do. And particularly now in this time of COVID and and this culture of not caring, you know, this entitlement to not care about each other. Yeah. It brings to mind how oppression really operates off of isolation. So like, how do we isolate people and disconnect people from themselves, each other, or communities that they're part of? So that really resonated. This is a really interesting question. I think it it kind of ties into connection in a more systematic way. So, and you can tell, you can say, I don't know how to answer this question because I don't know Resma Medicum's work, but I know David and I are big fans of Resma Medicum. So this is a question that came in that says, what's your take on Resma Medicum's work and the notion of trauma being at the root of some of these dynamics? What's the balance you try to strike between sharing information cognitively when all of us are also clearly in need of healing and heartfulness. And then, you know, kind of this emphasis on white folks loving to go to the head versus the heart and the body. I think the work that we have to do, whether whatever our racial identities or whatever our lived experience is, I mean, white supremacy, capitalism, white supremacy produce trauma. That's what they do. And so we're all at some level healing and the healing that we have to do is not the same. Again, why I like affinity groups so much, because I think the healing that we're doing as white people is is not at all the same kind of healing that BIPOC people need to do or want to do or are doing. So I would also say that I'm learning, I am partnering with people who know more about somatics and more about trying to make sure that we are accessing ways of knowing besides just intellect. And one of the reasons that's important to me is because I actually, I'm the daughter of Uh, a college professor who taught at an elite university, public university in in the South at UNC, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I grew up in this environment and in my household where intellect was highly valued and emotion was not. And I was a very emotional child because there was nobody in my family expressing emotion. And I became the emotional lightning rod for the family and the one expressing emotion and shamed for that. And I was not good at school. And I was in my thirties before I understood that I was actually smart. So I have some, it it does resonate with me because I feel like there are ways that I know things that are much more emotion-based and now much more spirit-based, much more body-based. My body knows things way before my mind knows them. And so, yeah, I think it's so important to access all the different ways that we know things about ourselves and each other our intuition and and to develop, to unpack or develop those skills, whichever it is. I think it's critically important. And yeah, it's one of the things I admire so much about how our movement is learning and growing. Beautiful. Um, so this is a combination of a few other questions. 
So, you know, it's this person wrote asking those who benefit from white supremacy to feel the ongoing urgency and need to stay tuned in is frustrating. So many that were present now have simply disappeared. As one of the few POC in a predominantly white and Asian area, I feel like I'm speaking into an echo chamber. What are your suggestions to not just fall into the discouragement and disheartenment, feeling so alone in this work, and not let the anger eat me up that the white people I know make their excuses and simply don't care. So that's one big question, but there's a lot of similar ones where it's like, how do we also take care of BIPOC folks who are kind of left alone in predominantly white spaces? And I think for you, Tema, if you could speak to kind of like from like as a white person, like here's what we can do and also more at the large scale systematic way that the white supremacy culture framework allows us to enter into the conversation and work. I hope this answer is helpful. I think it's critically important that we find our people, our home base. And one of the things that has emerged out of COVID is this online opportunity. So one of the things that I've noticed as someone who teaches and facilitates is that I am now able to be in a relationship with people from pretty much anywhere. So my hope is that we all deserve and need a group of people where we can go and just be how we want and need to be with our frustration, with our pain, with our joy, with our... And so my hope is that if you feel isolated, you would be able to find people outside your geographic community that maybe could play that role. And then within your geography, my hope is that you would be able to find one or two others who really have the capacity to see you and hold you as you are and as you need and as you deserve. It doesn't take a tremendous number. It takes one or two. And, you know, I I have, this is on the website. My mother gave me four explicit instructions and this was after she died, but they were, they came through loud and clear. And one of the four instructions was find the others. And I, I, that was the most unexpected one that she sent to me. And I think it's really important. Like we all need a home base. And in this sort of heteronormative culture that we have, um, lots of times it's assumed that our bio family is going to be that home base. And for many of us, myself included, it's not. So we then have to do the intentional deliberate work of finding people who can, you can see us and, or, and then who we can see and we can offer that in return. And so if there's no one, find one person. And maybe if you need to like, you know, come to workshops like this or come to you know, find things where you think you'll find people like you. And, you know, I've actually been able to, to form at least one really couple of really good friendships from people I met online over this last two and a half years. So find the others you deserve and need. We all deserve and need to find the others. So, and I suggest that for anyone. When I was doing my doctorate, whole other story about why I did that. But when I was doing it, I had my dissertation committee that I was supposed to have. And then I formed my own of people who I actually loved and trusted to to guide me and support me in the way that I would keep me true. So, you know, I think whether it's at work or in, in, in your activism or, you know, you know, find the others, one or two or three others who can, and keep looking till you find them because there, we all have people, we all have our people. I love that. Find the others. There are a few people who asked, um, kind of, 
for you to expand more on the deviousness of white supremacy and the adaptability, how it's constantly evolving in its form and expression, where it will essentially fit into whatever container will hold white supremacy. And if you can kind of untangle the terms of white supremacy, whiteness, and white privilege, because I think in our attempt to do this work, sometimes we conflate all of them, right? So like if there's a way to kind of distinguish and discern between those and what's useful and not useful. Right. Well, some of you have, I think every once in a while I glance at the chat, some of you have talked about the deviousness, like the when we were talking about worship of the written word, how then the list of white supremacy culture characteristics then becomes the, the go-to absolute determination of whether it's white supremacy culture or not. You know, so you have a document that's trying to interrogate white supremacy culture that then gets used. So it's just the way that we fall into, you know, and how many of you mentioned perfectionism and that we can want to be perfectionist about being anti-racist. You know, it's just the way that it, it keeps reproducing itself. It's very good at that. I would say the way I understand white supremacy is that it's it's a project of capitalism. It's it's create it's a project that was created to disconnect people by organizing people from Europe into this um, category of white as part of a construct of racial value that would then justify and reproduce the violation and violence directed towards indigenous and black and other people and communities of color in service of power and profit and offering sometimes material benefits, but always more importantly, psychic benefits to those in the white group. And that white privilege is sort of, is the is the intended con- it's the consequence of the of white supremacy culture the whole idea is that you privilege the people in the white group to keep them invested in racism and in white supremacy culture and we can see the power of it because as we're witnessing now the actual material benefits of belonging to whiteness while always present are diminished from what they used to be and it, it's the psychic piece of it and the emotional piece of it is the part that I'm really struck by that that sort of the investment in wanting to to be part of this ideology that says I'm both normal and better, and I should be able to determine reality for myself and others. And yeah, that's the way that operates. And and whiteness is just the category that, that all of that falls into. It's the creation of whiteness. I'll say, and I hope this is not confusing, that I think the more I understand about white supremacy culture, in some ways, it's always about race and becomes less and less about race. It's just these, the way these constructs work with other constructs to just make sure there's a hierarchy of value that justifies oppression and violence for profit and power. Thank you for that. And the very last question, I'm trying to end us on a uh, high note. How do you find joy in this work? Because I also want to know for myself. (laughs) I find a lot of joy in this work. And I think it's because I think the goal here, I'll speak for myself. My goal is that I want to be free and I want us all to be free. And in my introduction, I'm a student of Lama Rod Owens and he He's a Buddhist uh, teacher. His recent book is Love and Rage. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Black man, queer man, very wise. And he, one of the retreats said, you know, the, 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 the point here is to get free. It's not to be happy. And I asked him, I said, well, I thought if I got free, I would be happy. And he said, well, maybe, but the point is to be free. And what I understand about that is that what white supremacy culture does is just layer who I am with all this conditioning all this fear and what I'm working on 
in community with other people is to like an onion, like unpeel the unpeel the layers of conditioning. And when I do that, the joy comes because I'm in community with other people who are doing that. And then we just see each other and are with each other. And my guess is most, if not all of us have been in these spaces where you know you're with people in this authentic and wonderful and loving and joyful way where love, you can actually feel, you can feel the love. And I think love, you know, where love is underneath it all. And that the joy of this work is that if we don't do the work, we'll never get to the love is the way I think about it. So I want to get to the love. Well, love is something that I'm experiencing right now, both from you, from sharing your experiences and your time uh, with me again, selfishly, like this was for me. I just wanted to talk to Tema Hogan about all of these things, but uh, also from the 300 plus people who've been in this space, also the others who will be watching this uh, recording later. Very grateful. I also just want to say thank you uh, for coming tonight and for listening to me. It's not my favorite format, you know, like to talk at you. I know all of you on this call have lots of wisdom and thoughts and questions and things to add. And I'm sorry, we didn't get to hear from everybody. And so thank you for your patient listening. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode next time. We'd also love to hear from you. Is DNI revolution or reform? Send us your thoughts and juicy DEI confessions as a voice memo or text to revolutionorreform at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review and share this with a friend, old school, or you know, with Karen at work. Later, y'all. Bye. There's so much that we wish that we could get to uh, today, and maybe we'll come up with some ways to engage with some of those questions in the future. But it's really important for us, for me to ask Tema, how is it that we, this community of folks gathered here, can support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? I think the best thing, the thing that I would ask each person to do is just be who you really are and show up to yourself and to each other in the best way that you can. My work is your work. Your work is my work. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. You keep doing what you're doing and just try and try and hold each other. When I get frustrated and angry and I can't stand you in this moment, then you keep going. And when you can't stand me, I'll keep going. And you know, that we just give each other the grace and the room to, to keep each other going because they, you know, the, the white supremacy is a project of disconnect. So I'm always looking for and a, and a fear. So I think our job is to connect and to expand and help each other to do that whenever we can and and understand and give a lot of grace for the times when we can't, because it's just, sometimes it's just too much and hold each other when it's too much and then be out in the world when we can, when we can, that would be awesome. I also just want to say thank you uh, for coming tonight and for listening to me. It's not, my favorite format, you know, like to talk at you. I know all of you on this call have lots of wisdom and thoughts and questions and things to add. And I'm sorry, we didn't get to hear from everybody. And so thank you for your patient listening. Absolutely. And I know one of the things that you told me that like, 
if people don't take anything else away. There are lots of things to take away, but one of the things you said, like, please use the website, not the article, because there have been uh, so many updates. I believe also Connie and my work, both with And Now Collective, Connie's work around healing justice, my work with Amplify RJ around restorative justice. A lot of times people who are parents or also parents or soon to be parents like myself are wondering about how to do this work with children. And my friend Tiffany Jewell is here and she has a book coming out. It's called Anti-Racist Kid. And it's a really great resource for people who are trying to do this work with families and with young children. Because, you know, if we start this work young, there's so much less unlearning to do when we're older. Connie, any closing words? I just wanted to say thank you so much to Tema for the wisdom and gems that you shared. I also wanted to say thank you to everyone who joined and stayed on. It makes me so, I feel, I just feel so grateful and similar to what Tema was saying, you know, like I wish I could be in conversation with every single one of you because I know you all have so many things to share in terms of wisdoms and gifts as well. So please reach out to us. We would love to just to get to know you and, you know, just so much gratitude for everyone that's here beautiful with that friends we hope to see you all um soon be in community thank you thanks for listening we'll be back with another episode next time we'd also love to hear from you is dndi revolution or reform send us your thoughts and juicy dei confessions as a voice memo or text to revolution or reform at gmail.com Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review and share this with a friend, old school, or, you know, with Karen at work. Later, y'all. Bye.